0: Well, the first thing I have to say is it's not a mustache, it's a mutation. I have three of them on my back. (laughs) My mom had one right here, it was so sad. We'd say, Mom, shave, we're going out to eat. I have more of these, but I'll stop. (laughs) My colleagues on the couch have all gone to bed because they just arrived and it's about 3 o'clock in the morning for them. Uh, I know that's like I was uh, speaking internationally, and I was very, very tired. I I was on my 12th message. I was being translated, and so I came out on the stage, and I just laid down and said, I'm going to uh, speak from this position. My translator looked at me and said, there's no way that I'm laying down next to you. (laughs) Well, it's great to be with you. There is something that you do every day that is profoundly important. You are probably unaware that you do this thing, but you do it incessantly. It is an inescapably human thing to do. The way that you do this will shape the direction of your life. This function is beneath everything you say, everything you desire, every choice you make, every action you take. You do it again and again and again, yet you live with, like I do, without recognition how profoundly important this function is. Here it is. In very, very significant ways, every day you interpret your world. Let me give you a biblical principle. Not taught in these words, but taught over Scripture. Human beings made in the image of God do not live life based on the facts of their experience, but based on their interpretation of the facts. Let me say that again. Human beings made in the image of God do not live life based on the facts of their experience, but based on their interpretation of the facts. You're always interpreting. You're always trying to make meaning of yourself. You're always asking questions about why something happened and who you are and What is meaning and purpose and why is God doing what he's doing? You're doing that all the time. You are an interpreter. Everyone in this room is a theologian. Everyone in this room is a philosopher. Everyone in this room is an archaeologist and you will dig through the mound of your existence to make sense out of life. That's why you can have two people in the very same situation and they have dramatically different responses. I'll go to a movie with my dear wife Luella, one of her movies. And in the middle of the film, she begins doing this. She hasn't caught a cold. She's having an emotional reaction to the film. About then, I'm thinking, these are the best raisinettes ever. I can't wait till the film is over so I can find the manager's theater, so I can find his source for these Raisinets, because I need these Raisinets in my life. <laughs> we get out from the film, and Llewellyn says, oh, Paul, wasn't that a great movie? And I say, the Raisinets. Did you taste the Raisinets? <laughs> Two people in a dramatically, <clears throat> the same situation with dramatically different circumstances. My, my boys went off one early in the summer to vacation Bible school and when they got home I asked the question a dad would ask what was what'd you learn today what'd you you experience and the younger one said snakes we learned all about snakes his brother said you're lying (laughs) nobody said anything about snakes there were no snakes he said yes there were there were snakes daddy there were snakes So I called their Bible school teacher, and I said, I'm confused. My sons were in the same room, and they seemed to have dramatically different experiences. What was going on? What I discovered was they were talking about Egypt, and the Egyptians wore these headdresses with the serpent for Ethan who's artistic, he saw that snake, he didn't hear or see anything else. (laughs) He was in snake universe. (laughs) Justin, who is detailed, just saw all the history and didn't see a snake. Two boys, same situation. Very dramatic differences in the way they interpreted that moment. How do you make sense out of your life? What are the things that you say to you about yourself, about what you do, about God, about others, about what life is about? Now, now why is that important? Because one of the things that God calls you to, listen very carefully, is to embed your story the story of your life in the larger story of redemption. That you look at your story through the lens of God's story. That it's a larger story of redemption that becomes an interpretive tool for you to make sense of what is happening in your life. So that where you live every day, you would live with a God's story mentality. It's God's story that interprets your work. It's God's story that interprets your relationship to your physical body. It's God's story that interprets your sexuality. It's God's story that interprets your finances. It's God's story that interprets your relationships. It's God's story that interprets the way you spend your leisure time. It's God's story that interprets what you do with your thoughts. It's God's story that Interprets how you parent. It's God's story, it's God's story, it's God's story, it's God's story that is the way that you make sense out of life. You see, good theology never just defines God for you. Good theology redefines who you are as a child of God. You get your identity from your belief system. And so it's it's important for you to understand the grand themes of God's story because those grand themes are meant to define you, to motivate you, to direct you, to give you a sense of purpose, a sense of location, a sense of direction. I would ask you the question, how much does God's story help you make sense out of your story? If I watched the video of your last several weeks, would I see somebody who is living where you live every day with a God story mentality? Well, I want to just talk about two themes of the grand redemptive story this evening two themes that are meant to orient you and direct you. Here's the first one. God's story is the world's most beautiful love story. Now, you think when you hear that that you know what I'm talking about, but you probably don't. You see, the hope, you would think that you would hear me say that the hope Of the universe is God's love. That your hope as a person is God's love. But I'm not going to say that because it's actually true that your hope in life and death, are you ready for this? Is God's love for Himself. If God didn't love himself, there would be no hope for us. Are you confused? Let me ask you the question. Could you write 10 pages on God's love for himself and how hope for humanity is found in God's love for himself? Could you? Have you ever heard anybody even talk about that? Could you write 10 pages? Could you write five pages? Could you write a page, a paragraph, a sentence? Say, Paul, what are you talking about? God's love from himself, it, it sounds selfish, it sounds self-obsessed, it sounds weird. What I'm talking about is the profound glory of the love relationship between the Father and the Son. Apart from the beauty, the gorgeous beauty of that relationship, there would be no redemption, and we would be doomed. Probably the place where this love relationship is most unfolded for us is in the Gospel of John. It's like John... Uh, invites us to eavesdrop on tender, intimate moments between the Father and the Son. Moments that are recorded for us because we're meant to pay attention to them. We're meant to find hope in them. Listen to this. This is a father to the son. As my father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus says that the love that I want to offer to you is the very same love that the father has given to me. The the roots of the love that Jesus offers you are found in his relationship to his father. Listen to this. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. That's John 3, 35. Let me read that to you again. If you're taking notes, you can probably take down the whole verse. As the father loves the son, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Now, this is John 3. John 3 is a lengthy discussion on the redeeming love of God for his world. And so what the passage is saying, the all things is redemption. Here's what it's saying. Because of the re- love relationship between the Father and the Son, the Father it has entrusted the work of redemption to the Son. That mission of redemption... That Jesus comes to earth and carries on his shoulders is the result of the love relationship between the father and son. What is one of the most precious uh, results of true love? Trust. And so the father, because of the nature, the perfect love between father and son, is able to entrust the most important work that anyone has ever done the work of dealing with sin, the work of justification, the work of suffering and death that bore the penalty for our sin, all of that work is entrusted to the Son because of the death of the love relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father says, I love this one, and I know that I can trust this work Into his hands. You see, your redemption is absolutely dependent on the purity and the strength and the faithfulness of the love between the Father and the Son. Listen to the Son speak I do as the Father commanded me that the world may know that I love the Father. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. For the Father, his love for the Son allows him to entrust to the Son the work of redemption. For the Son, his love for the Father allows him to surrender to the call of his Father to do that work. Listen, you know this is true. The two ingredients that always make for a good relationship are trust and surrender. Why do we have messed up relationships? Because we're not very good at being trustworthy. And we're not very good at surrender. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, think about this. We don't don't like to surrender to difficulty of any kind, do we? We don't like to surrender to the larger will of God. I mean, if you have... If you run out your car on a very busy day and you have a flat tire, do you say to yourself, praise God for his sovereignty? In his goodness, he has chosen a different path for me this morning. I mean, listen, for many of us, a flat tire on a busy day will bring us 75% of the way to atheism. Because we hate surrender. J- just allow yourself to think about Jesus, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, who surrenders to the call to come to earth, to subject himself. To all of the ravages of a fallen world. Listen, don't let yourself think that the suffering of Jesus began at the cross. The suffering of Jesus began at his birth. All you need to know is that he was born in a barn and his first bed was a feeding trough. Never had a place to lay his head wasn't an attractive person, despised and rejected of men, sorrow and grief went everywhere he was. Jesus was willing to surrender himself to a job description no one in this room would accept. If you were offered that job, what would you say? No thanks. It was this utter, unshakable love for his father that caused Jesus to say I'm willing I'm willing to leave the splendor of eternity I'm willing to subject myself not just to human life but to a dark and hard human life the kind of human life no one would ever want I'm willing to subject myself to gross injustice I'm willing to subject myself to physical torture I'm willing to subject myself to brokenness with you I'm willing to surrender all of that. That's a gorgeous picture of love. You see, we we think that hope in life is first found in God's love for us. The truth rather is that hope in life is found in God's love for himself. Because without that trust and without that surrender, there would have been no love lavished on us. It wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have happened. The Bible, the biblical story, is a story... of the most perfect love ever. And you should let yourself reflect on the majesty of that love. That, that love ought to pull out of you worship, thanks, gratitude, because you know how hard trust is. You know how hard surrender is. And... If if Jesus is willing to surrender and the Father is willing to trust, are you ready for this? There is hope for us. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter how messed up you are, no matter how dark your story is, that surrender And that trust is your hope in life and death. The biblical story is a love story. Not first God's love for you, but first God's love for himself. That that incredibly beautiful combination of trust and surrender that accomplished your redemption. But the biblical story is also a story of another nature. I want to take you to a very familiar passage of Scripture. If you've got a Bible there, or an iPad, or an iPhone, or whatever weird, sad, off-brand you're carrying... If it's a Galaxy Note 7, leave. (laughs) I fly all the time. They used to tell you you couldn't turn it on on a plane. Now they tell you, get off the plane. We don't want you. You have a choice of flying or having a phone. Your choice. And and I want to talk to you about the danger of familiarity because I think familiarity is worth talking about. Listen, familiarity with the gospel can be a beautiful thing, but familiarity with the gospel of Jesus Christ can be a dangerous thing. Uh, Think with me. Let's say that uh, you move to a new community, and to get from where uh, you live to where you work, you have to drive on this beautiful wooded street, beautiful trees. And the first time you take that drive, you are just blown away by its beauty. You're so thankful that you get to make that drive every day where there's these beautiful trees. Six weeks later, you're taking the same drive, you're pounding on the dash that says traffic drives you crazy, and you haven't seen a tree for three weeks. That's what happens with familiarity. We lose our awe. We quit seeing. Things that once gripped us don't grip us anymore. And so I want to take you to one of the most familiar passages in all of the Bible. In fact, I I love this passage because I think that it summarizes The biblical story in nine words. The whole plot is there in nine words. The whole hope for all of us is there in just nine words. You want to know what the nine words are? I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) For God so loved the world that he gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. The biblical story is from beginning to end a generosity story. It's a story of the awesome generosity of the Lord. Generosity could never be earned, could never be achieved, could never be deserved. What's the the very nature of generosity? Generosity is kindness unearned. That's what generosity is. For God so loved the world that he gave God's response to sin. God's response to rebellion, God's response to the other brokenness of his world was generosity. Let me read that wonderful verse for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The biblical story is not first a story of human achievement. If you read your Bible carefully, there aren't any heroes in the Bible. Everyone in the Bible is flawed in some way. The only hero in the Bible is God himself. The biblical story isn't a judgment story. If the biblical story had been a judgment story, it would have been a short story, right? It would end with Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, in an act of outrageous rebellion, disobey God, and God wipes out the world. And all God's people said, Amen, we leave. Short story. You say, but Paul, there's, there's all kinds of announcement of judgment in Scripture. Hear this. Whenever you announce judgment, you're announcing judgment as an act of grace. Because if all you were going to do was judge somebody, you would just judge them. The whole, whole reason one would announce judgment is to give someone an opportunity to turn. Think about God's anger. I think we need to understand that God's anger is not the embarrassing uncle of his characteristics that you should hide from the rest of the family. You could argue that God's anger is the hope of the universe. If If God weren't angry with sin, there'd be no cross. You don't ever want to live in a world where the person in charge of the world is incapable of anger. There would be no justice. There would be no mercy. But God's the biblical story is not a human achievement story. The biblical story is not a judgment story. The biblical story is a generosity story. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so loved the world, think of it. God placed his love on a world populated by rebels, populated by people who who believe the lie of their autonomy, believe the lie of their self-sufficiency, who willingly step across God's boundaries, who steal glory that belongs to God who attribute to themselves things that they could have never achieved on their own, who give their their minds to despicable things, who offer their desires to immoral things. God's response to the sin that was everywhere in his world was response of love. God so loved the world. It's remarkable It's remarkable. We should never, ever grow so familiar with the love of lo- the Lord that it doesn't make us weep anymore. It doesn't make us sing anymore. It doesn't make us rejoice anymore. You are a profoundly disadvantaged person if you've gotten to the place where you no longer are moved by the love of the Lord. Reflect on the cost of love. Love. Reflect on the fact that it's hard for you and me to love people that haven't even done anything to us. You got to go to the grocery store to pick up one item, medium salsa, okay? That's it. Just one thing. And... You're on a busy schedule, and so you're praying that if God loves you, the grocery store would be empty. So you could get your thing, and you could get out of there. And so you run into the store. It doesn't seem very populated. There are 15 checkout aisles, but only one of them has a person in them. And, but the aisle's empty. And so you get your salsa. You think there must be a God. And... You run to that aisle, and just before you get there, a woman pulls in front of you with a cart filled with 150 items. You can't believe it. You already hate her. And you begin, she begins to slowly pull things out of her cart like she's surprised that they're in there. You're thinking, I have... One jar. One. Finally, she gets everything out on the belt, and you're thinking, well, it won't be too long. And she pulls out a hundred coupons <laughs> and starts connecting the coupons to the grocery items. At that point, you want to share something with her, but it wouldn't be Jesus. Finally, she's time to pay, and and she seems surprised that she's going to pay, and she pulls out her purse, which is the size of a camping tent for a family of six. And she goes into her purse, and the whole top half of her body disappears, and she's hunting for her wallet, and she's pulling out things. She's not pulling out makeup and whatnot. She's pulling out children and small dogs. By then, you're a psycho killer. Reflect on the majesty that God would place his love on people like you and me. That God could look at us, look at every wicked thought, look at selfishness, look at immorality, look at rebellion, look at arrogance, and his response would be love. God so loved the world that he gave. It tells us that the generosity of the Lord is not motivated by what's in us. The generosity of the Lord is motivated by what's in him. The root of that generosity is not us. The root of that generosity is his love. Now, you know this is true. If I hire you to work, for me for five hours at $10 an hour. And at the end of those five hours, I hand you a check for $50. You don't say to me, Paul Tripp, you are a dramatically generous person. Why? Because you earned it. But If at the end of those five hours, I hand you a check for $5,000, what would your response be? How could it be that you would love me this much? Can I make a connection for you? I'm about to hurt your feelings. To the degree that you minimize your sin, to that degree you will not be blown away by the love of Jesus. Now, I want to be real with you for a moment. Everyone in this room is a very skilled self-swindler. Nobody swindles you more than you do. I say this all the time, and I'm really quite serious, but people laugh. I said it earlier that no one is more important in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. Most of us have learned it's best not to move our lips. They 'll think you 're crazy, and when you 're talking to yourself don 't change places <laughs> they 'll put you away, but you 're in a constant conversation with yourself and you see here's here 's how it works if if you do something wrong, uh, your conscience will bother you that 's the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, and when your conscience bothers you, you only have one or one of two choices to make. You will either confess that that is wrong, and you'll place yourself once again under the justifying mercies of Christ, or you will wreck some system of self-justification that makes that wrong acceptable to your conscience. We are so good at doing that. A man's at the mall, and he's lusting after a woman, a Across the way, but he'll say to himself that wasn't lust. I'm just a man who enjoys beauty. Thank God for His creation. Two people who are involved in, in just uh, gossip, horrible gossip. At the end of the conversation, will say, "We need to pray," and they'll tell themselves that was just a very extended, detailed prayer request. A parent screaming at their children in unbridled parental anger will say, that wasn't anger. I was just being like one of God's prophets. Thus says the Lord. (laughs) A person on an ugly quest for power will say, I'm not after power. I'm just exercising God-given leadership gifts. To the degree that you minimize your sin, to that degree you will fail to celebrate the gorgeous, generous love of the Redeemer. Maybe... You're not blown away, not because you don't know of God's love, but because of the things that you say to you that actually tell you you don't need it because you're doing quite well. You say, Paul, I'm not like that. Well, how do you respond when someone points out a wrong in you? Do you say thank you? I'm so thankful you point these things out to me. Could you do that more? Do you? Or do you feel your chest tighten? Your ears redden? You activate your inner lawyer? I can say this because I have an inner law firm. And you rise to your defense. We are profoundly spiritually disadvantaged if we've lost our awe at the gorgeous love of the Redeemer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Here's what this means. The only gift that God could ever give that could solve the problem of sin is himself the law wouldn't do it the law does a great job at exposing sin the law is a wonderful guide for life but it has no ability whatsoever to rescue and restore your heart none Theology wouldn't do it. I love the theology of Scripture. I, th- I think it's the Bible that's taught me how to think. But if all you needed with was theologically, theological information, Jesus would have never had to come. And you see, the, the reason that the only gift that be, could be given was the gift of Himself is because our problem is not environmental. Our problem is not relational. My problem is not that I live in an evil world. My problem first is not that I live near messed up people. Listen, the most dangerous thing in my life exists inside of me, not outside of me. And the Bible names it sin. I am my greatest problem. And so I'm unable to help myself. Because I can run from a location, I can run from a situation, I can run from a circumstance, but I can't run from me. I found every time I try to run from me, I show up with me at the end of the run. And so the, the only hope for me was a rescuer. When does a person need rescue? When they're in a situation that they can't get themselves out of. When they're in a situation that they can't solve. And so God gives the ultimate gift, the gift of His Son. It's an amazing, amazing thing, again, that we grow so familiar with. What generosity that God would give His Son as the ultimate sacrifice for people who don't love Him, who don't want to serve Him, who don't acknowledge Him, and who willingly step over all His boundaries. Now, I want to say something about that gift. That gift... Is a guarantee that God will give you also with Him everything that you need. Let me read for you from Romans chapter 8, verse 32. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him? graciously give us all things. The gift of Jesus is your guarantee that God will give you everything you need between the already of your conversion and the not yet of your home going. That past grace is your guarantee of present grace. That you will have every thing that you need. Not everything you want, not everything you desire, not every fantasy of self-oriented comfort and ease that you are able to conjure up in your mind. No, God will give you everything that he as a wise, loving father knows that you need. Jesus is your guarantee of every grace that you would need in this moment. Every grace you will get, because Jesus died, it makes no sense that the Father would abandon you along the way. Everything. You don't have to wake up in the morning and wonder if God will supply what you need. God will never call you to a task without enabling you to do it. If He puts a red sea in front of you and He means for you to cross it, He will build a boat, He'll... He'll send a boat. He'll build a bridge. He'll give you the ability to swim or He'll part the waters. He will always give you what you need to do what He's called for you to do. He will supply everything that you need. His grace really is sufficient. Stop worrying. Stop looking at the what-ifs. Stop wondering. Stop looking over the fence at somebody else's life. You don't need to worry. Jesus is your guarantee. The cross is your guarantee. If God would go to this extent, if He would not spare the gift of His Son, if He would not spare the sacrifice of His Son, He will spare to you no good thing. People say to me all the time, all I want is God's best. You're getting it. If you need it, you have it. (laughs) You need to put that in your theological pipe and smoke it. Or if that offends you, get out this theological gum and chew it. I know it's a wide range of people here. (laughs) Listen. If you're feeling want, perhaps the issue is not the faithful generosity of, of your Father in heaven. Perhaps... It's your distorted definition of need. Maybe the problem is not God's faithfulness. Maybe the problem is your faithfulness. Perhaps your heart is wandering places it should not wander. You know, desire very quickly morphs into demand, and demand very quickly morphs into need, and need sets up expectation, and expectation produces disappointment. That dynamic takes place in all of our lives. You hear what I said? It's hard to hold a desire with an open hand because we close our hand over it. And once we've closed our hand over it, we then name it as a need. And once we name it as a need, we feel it's our right to expect it and to demand it. And now we're not living thankful lives. We're living entitled lives. And we now bring God into the court of our judgment and judge him for being less than faithful. Perhaps your struggle is not the faithfulness of God at all. Is there any indication anywhere in Scripture that God gives any of His children His third and fourth best? God's generosity in giving His Son is His guarantee that He will lavish on you His generosity. For all of your life, he's generous in faithfulness. He's generous in love. He's generous in mercy. He's generous in wisdom. He's generous in sovereignty. He's generous in grace. He's generous in patience. He's generous in tenderness. He's generous. He's generous. He's generous. He's generous. He's generous. generous. I love saying this, what I'm about to say, all that God is, He is for you by grace. He unloads His glory on you in gorgeous, moment by moment, day by day, generosity, He's generous. For God so loved the world that He gave. And He's giving, 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 and and He'll give on to eternity. Ten million years into eternity, you will still be the sons and daughters of the generosity of the Lord. He's generous. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish. In generosity, He removed our doom and replaced our doom with eternal life. What an incredible story. And that eternal life begins right here, right now. The moment that we believe. Giving us everything we need for life and godliness. I would ask you this evening... What shapes your living? Your sense of what you would like to accomplish from life? Your sense of a personal history you'd like to escape? Your little package of wants or needs or feelings? have you embedded your story in the larger story of redemption is love by god because of the love between god your identity you're blown away by that love? Do you wake up in the morning with a to-do list for the Lord because you got all these things that you have named as needs that you don't think he's delivered? Or do you wake up in the morning filled with a sense of that you are the recipient of mind-boggling generosity. And you say to yourself, how could it be that I have been chosen to be the recipient of this generosity? I want to say one final thing that one of, one of the things that it means to embed your little story in the larger story of redemption is this recognition. God makes his invisible love visible by sending people of love to give love to people who need love. God calls you not just to be a recipient of his love, but to be an instrument of that love. Where where are you incarnating the gorgeous love of God in your life? Who are the people around you that need love? God makes His invisible generosity visible by sending generous people to give generosity to people who need generosity. Who are the people that you touch that need to see the generous hand of God? I'm going to take you to a scripture tomorrow, but I'll give you a little hint of this that names us as his ambassadors. You're the look on God's face. You're the tone of his voice. You're the touch of his hand. By divine, sovereign grace, your story has connected, been connected to the larger story of redemption. That means your story is bigger than your story. Where in your story are you incarnating that love and incarnating that generosity? If you're God's child, you're never ever just instrument, or recipient. You're always also called to be recipient. Are you incarnating incarnating that love in your marriage? Are you? As a mom and dad? As a student? As a worker? As a friend? Are you extending that generosity in your marriage, in your friendship, in your neighborhood, at your workplace? Nobody gives love better than a person who is blown away by the love he's been given. No one is more generous than a person who is blown away by the generosity that's been lavished down on him. May familiarity not dull our hearts. May God give us back our awe again. May we weep again. May we rejoice again. May that love blow our minds again. May that generosity grip our hearts again so we may live. That story, that larger story, where God has placed us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for allowing us to eavesdrop on the love between the Father and the Son, to see again that trust, to think again about that surrender and the hope in life and death that's found there for us. Thank you for those nine words that have been retained for us that capture the drama of your generosity. May our hearts be enlivened again. May we weep again. May we rejoice again so that we would be those who make your invisible love and your invisible generosity visible in the place where you have put us. We pray this in the sweet and strong name of Jesus, who was willing. Amen.